Have you ever heard the expression, stay in your lane or own your lane? It implies focusing on what you are good at, but never resting on your laurels. Being relentless in learning more and offering more in your lane of expertise. In doing so, you build currency and credibility with your audience. You offer them value. And this holds in all worlds, scientific, academic, corporate, and with your friends and family. It doesn't guarantee an audience as your content must be relevant. Someone, for example, who is a world expert on dung beetles isn't going to be as famous as one of the thought leaders on fantasy football. However, it guarantees that whatever the size of your audience, they'll be engaged if they trust your ideas, insights, and solutions, if you're helping them get to where they need, want, and deserve to go. Jeff Bezos, he saw the incredible potential of the internet back in the early 90s when he started Amazon, when people were still calling it a fad. He now controls 50% of online spending. It doesn't matter to me whether we're a pure internet player. What matters to me is do we provide the best customer service. Internet, schminternet. Netflix owned the lane in entertainment streaming in 2006 when they transitioned from mail-in DVDs to an online platform, while Blockbuster stood still confident in their bricks and mortar strategy. Same could be argued with Spotify and other streaming services. BlackBerry owned the mobile world. Why? Because they were the most secure platform. We're a very poorly diversified portfolio. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's thing. it either goes to the moon or it crashes dirt. So, uh, <laughs> but it's making it to the moon pretty good. So sure, totally we'll stay with it. CIA, the U.S. government, insisted on people using BlackBerry. But then they lost their lane when they jumped over and tried to chase Apple to being the next new thing. My guest today, he knows how to choose his lane better than most. And a lane that's of immense importance to you. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. He's been called a visionary, a digital expert, and a community leader. He's also an entrepreneur, investor, best-selling author, trusted advisor, chronic reader, and passionate speaker who connects with people worldwide. His name is Mitch Joel. His first book, Six Pixels of Separation, was about how and why new media has changed our lives forever. The second book, Control-Alt-Delete, answers the questions, now what? Now that everyone is on social networks, sharing and conversing, how do you pivot your business to career to capitalize on how much our world is changing and how do you get the edge on where all of this is taking us? Mitch Joel, welcome to Chatter That Matters. So Mitch, what I'm trying to do with my podcast is to counter this relentless storm of negativity and with it a growing sense of impossibility by talking to people like you who find a way to make things happen. If we're successful together, we're going to leave the audience with some actionable ideas and insights that they could say, hey, that I could take and apply to my life. I talked about owning a lane and you chose a lane early in your career, which was a lane to nowhere at the time. It was digital transformation. You were ahead of the curve and really seeing that this was our future. I can look in the rearview mirror and go, yeah, that's blindingly obvious. But back then- People like you were laughing at me, Tony. <laughs> people were laughing at you for sure. But I mean, what, what made you go after that, given how successful you were in so many other different walks of life that you said, this is something that I'm just going to be- a thought leader on, and I'm going to continue to have pole position as long as I can. In the early 80s, I grew up in a family of four boys, middle class-ish, and my parents would give us one thing that we would share amongst the brothers just to make it more affordable. And, and typically it was something like, you know, the first CD player, the first Beta or VHS. And we had one of the first computers after the Atari video game systems. And I was just really enthralled with with that. And so that, that culmination of wanting to create 
being a writer, being a creator and having computers was always a part of my, it was in my DNA from when I was a, a kid. You know, the internet comes along, I'm still living at home and I get access through McGill University to some type of what a very rudimentary internet is. And because I was already doing things in terms of writing uh, within the music business and just seeing things in general, I thought this is it. Like this is the whole new paradigm. In the early 90s, I had a, a second magazine called Enrage and the cover story was on the internet. And just to frame it, the innovation at the time was hyperlinks. The fact that you could click on a link to go somewhere versus typing in the massive URL, which is what we used to have to do in the internet. So these intersections, this lane that you call it, was always around consumer behavior, brands, technology. Anything that I create to this day has to have within it those three ingredients for it to be something that I feel I can put a stamp on. One aspect of it is that's the lane and that's how the lane develops. But the other thing I tell people is when you're in the digital disruption or innovation or technology space, speaking of the word lane, it's a very long and wide road. It doesn't really end. So it gives you a sandbox where you can constantly have new stories. I wouldn't have been able to talk about things like non-fungible tokens, the metaverse, and et cetera, six years ago. I hate to lose this flow, but I have to go back. Where are the four brothers? Where were you in terms of the packing order? I was third, the most forgotten. <laughs> and were your parents crazy to throw an Atari in front of four boys and think that you're going to figure this out without just an absolute, must have been just a battleground. Well, I mean, there was definitely fights over, you know, who gets the, the joystick and who plays who and, and when and where. But no, I think ultimately it forced us to figure out how to work together. I think it forced us to really think about things that my parents probably didn't even understand at the time in terms of what this stuff might be able to do. Um, and then ultimately, I think it was probably just a great babysitter. <laughs> now, I love the, in your, the chapter in your book where you call your career swiggly and you just started teasing on it a bit with this sense of, you know, I had a magazine. There's a <laughs> lot of things that went in your knapsack at an early age. Give us that sort of the highlight reel of Mitch Joel before you came on my scene when we'll talk about your first book, the sense of all this eclectic experiences. And is that something you encourage others to get? At an early age. There's no doubt about it that I think back to even elementary school and me sitting there and thinking, I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 18. <laughs> I just always had this idea of wanting to build things. And I always loved music, in particular hard rock and alternative and edgier stuff. So this, this computer that I had, this Atari 800 and doing very rudimentary word processing and dot matrix printing led me to a job at a very young age for a very entrepreneurial individual who was renting CDs. You know the business a little bit better than most do. You could rent movies back then, but renting CVDs was like, uh, CDs was a complete copyright. In fact, you could not do that. You were not allowed to do that. They needed an inventory and I was able to type and was typing up databases of all the stuff they had in stock and would do that just for fun, just to get free CDs and hang out and be a part of that. That person then went on to work at the time in Canada. There was a very large teen magazine in English and French based out of Montreal where I live called Fan Club. Because they couldn't type, they would either give me notes or read me the stories and I would type them up for them. Again, very early days of computers pre-internet. And as a thank you, uh, we went to a couple concerts. One of them was in Toronto. And on the way to Toronto, we got word that Tommy Lee from Motley Crue was in town. They were about to launch what was to be a massive album called Dr. Feel Good. And he was available for interviews. And he looked at me and said, you're a huge fan. You interview them. The story was filed. And the editor read it and thought, who wrote this? And he came clean and said, I have this 
friend of mine who's 16, 17 years old, who types stuff for me and loves rock and roll. And the publisher said, bring him in. Gave me a once over and said, hey, it's a teen magazine. Might be cool to have a teen writing for us. The publisher soon decided to shut it down. They had a health scare or something and shut it down. I thought, well, my career can't be over. I'm like 18, 19. And so I decided to publish my own magazine. So to make some money, I was working uh, part-time at Multimags. Tony, I'm telling you, I would go through these magazines and look at the mastheads for any publisher that had a phone number. And I'd call them and say, how do you start a magazine? And we started publishing. We published one magazine, then a second one, then to help a third one get launched. At that point, I kind of got burnt out. It was really hard to do with a skeleton crew. We were, we were doing quite a bit of magazine publishing and writing and design was cra- and advertising was crazy. And then wound up hooking up with these people who had launched one of the first search engines pre-Google called Mama.com. That led to a, the dot-com boom, bust, and echo. I stayed through it all and it was an incredible ride. The real story in about 2002 is I started blogging, so very early in blogging and podcasting called Six Pixels of Separation, which led to interests from a book agent and uh, sold the rights for this book, Six Pixels of Separation, then did a second one called Control Alt Delete. And it was just, I say squiggly because if you if I say it like that, it quasi makes sense, but it only makes sense looking backwards. You know, if I would have said to you, like, kind of not doing well, dropping out of college, bumming around writing, had a rock magazine, suddenly is in the internet, suddenly it's just, it's wacky. But when you look back, it seems very natural. Most people think that their career is going to go from, I graduated college and it's going to go from the lower left quadrant to the top right quadrant. And I think it's a very squiggly line when you really look at the people who had interesting levels of success. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back. My guest today is Miss Joel, a serial entrepreneur, and his latest venture, Thinkers One. Imagine the top thought leaders in the world providing personalized messages to you. It's not about work-life balance or anything like that. I believe that you have to look at it as an entity, as one construct. And the visualization I give people is think of it as a stool. And the stool has three legs. One of the legs is your professional work and development. One of the legs is your community work. One of those legs is your personal stuff, your family, your friends, and whatever. If you have that stool and one of those legs is out of kilter, uh, it's going to topple over. I think the connective tissue, though, is this concept of a sponge. You strike me as someone that sort of just takes all of this incredible information and distills it, synthesizes it, adds to it, and it sort of squeezes out in a way that people can go, yeah, I kind of understand it now. I think that really is a great gift and a great lesson to people in life that having these thought leaders in your life that you trust and you pay attention to only enhances what you can do with the world you're in. It's a mutual admiration society. When I got into the industry and I was looking at who the competition was, who's doing things that are interesting and dynamic and creative. You were number one on that list. I'm not just saying that because we're having this conversation. I've, I've told you this in private and through emails in early days where you're probably like, who is this person bothering me? You know, When you're in that type of industry, as, as we can both attest, it's very inspiring. You're around people who are hyper-creative and are able to ascend and have tremendous levels of success and however you define that. But you're right in the area that I call myself an infovore. Yeah, I'm just a vacuum for information. Part of that comes from my own issues I probably have with self-esteem, which is you know, I dropped out of university after a semester because I had this magazine and I couldn't manage both. You know, I don't have a degree. I don't have an MBA. I've never done anything like that. And I feel like I'm constantly overcompensating for the industry and people that I'm surrounded with. I always assume everyone else is much smarter and much better educated than I am. It led me on a journey 
you know, I'm, I'm voracious with my reading. I'm voracious with my consumption. If I could do that all day, I would do it. You know, it's a, the nature versus nurture conversation of where did this writing come from then? Because if you weren't good in school, I, I couldn't really tell you. But this passion for writing and reading books about writing and how to be a better writer and watching videos and attending courses, the ability to read is how we research and learn. But whenever you're creating content, whether it's writing, whether it's this podcast, whether I'm speaking on a stage, you're actually teaching. You don't have to be the most skilled person to teach because teaching in and of itself in a Socratic form, it's very philosophical. Like I'm learning also as I teach, but it's a way of distilling that information and packaging it and trying to transfer it to see if there's any resonance with it. So if you think about the industry we both served, it's the same thing. You sit in a room with your team and the client and you try and come up with ideas, whether it's for an ad, for a website, for, for social media, and you try and find these little cracks that are unique in how you can produce it and even even with a great strategy and idea, you know, sometimes when you head into production, it doesn't quite end the way the idea was supposed to come. All of that is a teaching process that everyone's learning. If you can embrace that idea of being voracious with the information and also when I say reading, I don't mean tweets and blog posts. I think those are good, but I mean like books, like real books, spending a lot of time on long, complex texts makes your brain expand in a way that no other media can. I would say now that the media of choice is snackable. I'm just going to take a bite. I want something that I can offer this campfire, whether I'm online or around the office cooler. I want to show that I've got relevance. It seems that the patience for reading this long and complex text, for really trying to distill it and understand it, is not part of society anymore. How do we bring that back? Because I think that's a magic Lesson in life. Yeah, I'm not sure I fully agree. This is the whole, we have shorter attention spans. I don't believe that to be true. Think about binge watching. People will binge watch The Crown or Game of Thrones for hours and hours. They're not just looking for that quick TikTok video. Think about very deep podcasts like Lex Friedman, where he spends three hours with a guest or Joe Rogan, most popular podcast isn't a 20 minute thing. It's like you're, you got to pack a lunch for these shows if you're interested in them. So I think there's always been a voracious appetite for both long form and short form content. I think because we are always interested in the shiny object, we tend to look at things like the TikToks of the world or the Twitters of the world. But when you scratch beneath the surface, I think all human beings have the capacity for both. I just think they may not be making the best dietary choices. So let's build on that food metaphor because I do see the world almost like a buffet. It's endless. Your eyes are shining. You're trying to take it down by putting as much things on your plate as you can versus going, you know, it'd be really smart today for me to have a, a vegan meal, protein and lettuce. So my argument back to you is, yes, I agree that people binge watch and they get completely immersed and they want to make sure, you know, they'll spend 16 hours on a video game or a series. But it is becoming every day that buffet is getting bigger and bigger and there's more and more shiny objects. And am I going an inch deep and a mile wide or is there still an opportunity to go an inch wide and a mile deep on a subject? The beauty of the world as it is, because that ever growing, you know, the endless aisle of the buffet is there, that the actual opportunity is for you to go as deep as you want. But you're right that the navigation of society tends to be shallow. We read headlines and we forward the article without even reading the article. So I think we have bad media habits. 
<laughs> just like we have bad eating habits, right? You're right. The buffet goes forever, but we'll probably go for the chicken nuggets over the really healthy fish, just the nature of who we are. The ways in which we battle that as people One is you have to kill your darlings a little bit. You have to be able to open up a book, recognize it's not for you. And rather than toil through it, which will ultimately turn you off from books, not just that book, you have to be able to say, this is not for me. I'm going to move on to the next one, hopefully find something that resonates for me. And then the second one, which is probably the hardest one, it's a greater statement on society and social media and how we've become so self-isolating and divisive, is you need to be able to recognize the filters that are being put around you and the filters that you're creating. I make a cognizant effort all the time to read material that isn't directly in my industry or space just to get a different perspective. An example would be I subscribe to a newsletter called Dezen, D-E-Z-E-E-N. And it's really architecture and design. I'm not a huge fan of that, but I find it inspiring to hear other creators talk about it. Another thing that I do, which isn't accessible to everybody, I've been fortunate, is I've been attending the TED conference, the, the actual conference, every year for over a decade. It's not a question of, do you ever spoke to you? It's not that. It's my ability to go there for a handful of days with a notebook and just be exposed to topics from diverse as science and astrophysics to philosophy that I don't spend time with. And I take tons of notes. And I come back with a brand new reading list and a new way of thinking and the conversations you have in the hallway. So I'm looking to capture moments in time that will destroy the traditional filter bubbles that the algorithms are pushing to me and also giving myself space to learn. I think it's probably one of the biggest missteps we have as adults is we think we stopped going to school. I just don't believe that. Um, and, you know, my joke is, and I stole it from someone else. I wish I knew who, who to attribute it to. Is I, I would always say that I never let school get in the way of my education, right? And education is a lifelong pursuit, but we don't see it that way anymore. Well, let's talk about school for a moment. I mean, what you're talking about is liberal arts and you're talking, you know, you use the word philosophy and at all these different variety of subjects, but it seems that we're trying to track people very early into an area of expertise. Do you think that's a mistake? Do you think that we should be spending more time time when the children in their formative years to really expose them to a lot of different thinking? I tell a great story in in one of the books, I don't know which one, about a friend of mine who we were having lunch and she was very much an exploratory part of her career. I think this was the beginning or crystallization of this idea of my squiggle. She was like, I did okay in math. And the guidance counselor in high school said, hey, you should consider like sciences or engineering. She went, okay. Started taking courses and was on this path and became an engineer and then found herself being, you know, not feeling so satiated as her her career progressed. She was doing quite well. Off the cuff, Tony, I just made this comment like, isn't it crazy that like you and a guidance counselor made a decision at 16 years old and this is your life now? And I think we both saw the blood rush out of both of our bodies at the same time. If you look at the vast majority of our society, people are in careers or doing work that was predicated on a decision that was made at that age that was maybe pragmatic, but you know, not at all really germane to who they might be or their potential. I went to a a school that didn't really celebrate the arts at all. It was really all about doctors, lawyers, engineers, science. And I remember having an art teacher, Mrs. Kuska. It was probably grade 10 or 11. And she turned to me and said, you're pretty creative, Mitch. Have you ever considered doing something creative professionally? Tony, I kid you not. Maybe I was naive. Maybe I was dumb. I looked at her and thought, what are you talking about? I thought art was just for fun. Like I I had no idea what could be done in that realm of of world at all. So in a long winded way, 
Bingo, Tony. I mean, that's the biggest problem we have in society is that all of our lives are based. I mean, can you imagine letting a 14 year old make a decision for you right now? <laughs> we don't allow that. We're the parents. <laughs> so there's like a lot of stuff in there. When we come back, Mitch Joel talks about his bestseller, Six Pixels of Separation. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. For the third consecutive year, J.D. Power has ranked RBC highest in client satisfaction among Canada's five big banks. These are challenging economic times. You need a bank you can trust with the realities of today and your dreams of tomorrow. Bring your ideas to RBC because they matter, and RBC will bring theirs because you matter. Ideas happen at RBC. You fall into the area where what you're trying to really do is mitigate risk and minimize mistakes. Take that and put it to the side and ask yourself, why did you start the business? Most people started some form of business because they wanted to do something within their industry that was new that hadn't been done. That spirit of innovation is, I think, something that just needs to be brought back. You need to look at the business and say to yourself, what am I doing to constantly reimagine the industry that I serve? Welcome back. My guest today is Miss Joel, a serial entrepreneur, and his latest venture, Thinkers One. Imagine the top thought leaders in the world providing personalized messages to you. I want to talk about six pixels of separation. First of all, when I came out, I said, man, that's a brilliant name. And I think a name on a book, when I think of Tipping Point, Good to Great, Who Moved the Cheese? I mean, some of these books that stood out in a sea of books. What was your motivation for writing the book? And did you have any idea it would become as big as it was in terms of a bestseller, not just for the holiday season, but something that that has really stood the test of time? I appreciate that. And again, you know the business of of running an agency. you got to give credit where credit is due. I was invited to speak about building a personal brand in the early 2000s. You know, this idea of what I'd done with the blog and the podcast was very new, that you could build a platform on digital assets was a very new idea. And so I had an abstract that I had passed to one of our copywriters and she came back and said, you should call it six pixels of separation. And I was just like, oh, this is just genius. So full credit to the team always when when you have a great team and people are creative and you give them that space. It's amazing. Look, I mean, I was writing since 1989. So here we are in 2003 or four and I'm blogging and I'm thinking about it. And if you've never written a book and you're a writer, writing the book is like is Moby Dick. I mean, it's the whale, you know, and all you've got is like a fork with some tartar sauce on it. Like you're trying to figure out, like, how do you do this? It was always there. It was always an itch that I had not scratched. It was always a question I had about whether or not I could do it. I'd been published a lot. I just really felt that was the Mount Everest for me. And again, you talk about where's the synchronicity here. I'm running this podcast every week, which I still do. I think it's one of the longest running business podcasts in the world, also called Six Pixels of Separation. And I'm invited to meet, uh, have an author on my show whose book wasn't coming out for months and months and nobody had heard of this person. I got the book. I read the book, thought it was great, wound up interviewing them. It wound up being Dan Ariely from Predictably Rational. Dan was like, you should write a book. Let me introduce you to my agent. And I'll never forget. It was a dream come true. I'm walking after that meeting, waiting for my flight back to Montreal, just walking through Manhattan. And I looked down at my email and it was from the agent saying, great to meet you. Here's a contract I'd like to represent you. And it was like one of those dreams come true. You know, it's like a band being discovered in a bar by Eddie Van Halen or Miles Davis. It was really one of those moments for me, at least. At the end of the day, I sat down with the, the main president at Hassett Grand Central, again, the largest publisher in the world. And she was like, Mitch, we love the title. We love the, uh, we love the cover. We love you. You present well. Now all we need is lightning in a bottle. 
I would love to say it was all in my words, but I've read so many great books, Tony, that have never resonated with the audience. So, so your second book, which the, the name didn't come from a copywriter, if the folklore is right, it came to you in the shower. Control Alt Delete. Talk to me about those two books in sequence because Pixels to me was about this concept of why, but I think Control Alt Delete, which I found was really special, it was more about now what? Control Alt Delete was how. And so I had the how, like, how do you reboot your business based off of all these ever-changing things in the digital landscape? And I had the down to four or five big buckets that I thought was meaty, but it felt like half of a book. And so I'm in the shower and I realized, well, if I'm going to show businesses how to do it, I better be able to show an individual how they need to show up every day in this new world. And that's when it clicked that this would be two parts, right? Control, alt, delete, reboot your business. And then second part would be reboot your life. (laughs) Like, how do you really rethink how you're bringing yourself to work every day? And that book just, when I say oozed out of me, it was was one of those that oozed out of me. I I, I wish I could even recall writing it. I I can't. (laughs) Give the audience a a tease or a a bite size of some of the things that you talk about when you say it's time to reboot how you approach your life. I understand this book now is over a decade old. And I, I, you know, I thank you for your compliment. I, I think you're right that if you, if you remove the fact that like we didn't really even have Twitter at that point, forget TikTok and all that, the foundational ideas or philosophies ring true. What did we learn during the pandemic? We didn't learn that technology moves fast and that innovation, we've always known that. And Tony, you and I've been talking about this for 20 years, literally. What we learned during the pandemic is immediately... How digital first were you and how digital first was your business? If you were scrambling to sign up to Zoom in like March or April of 2020, you were not really, and trying to figure out you were not digital savvy. If you were a professional speaker like I am and you're going out and buying a webcam and a ring light and thinking that you're reinventing the wheel, you weren't digitally savvy because at that point we already had YouTubers. We already had Twitch. We already had people doing this. I was doing it already for, for over a decade. The other component of it is the distribution thing. So how do you bring yourself to a world where young kids weren't doing it? Older people weren't, you know, the pandemic crushed that. We had young kids that had to figure things out if they were lucky enough to have online learning. And, you know, I don't know about you, but we were sliding iPads under my parents and grandparents' door so that they could, you know, FaceTime with the kids. But then they figured out how to online order for food or do online banking. So now we had the whole discernible market. So when we talk about what rebooting is, it's this moment in time where you recognize that the tectonic plates have shifted. The ways in which you were probably taught to do things aren't necessarily the way they are. Maybe at the foundational way, it's true. You have a product, you try to get in front of an audience and hopefully they buy it or not, 100%. But if you're not understanding of the channels and how they can work for you and how technology can help you, you may be flat-footed. You may be on your heels a little bit. And the idea for Control Alt Delete in Six Pixels was to use a format that these executives were comfortable in new business book and help them transform their thinking. I was pretty certain in 2004 and 2005 and onwards that most of the executives were not reading my blog or listening to my podcast because they thought, well, what is this craziness? But a book is something that they could grab on a flight and read on the way to the West Coast or back and be able to have cogent conversations with their teams and and be able to look in the mirror and say, is my business future-proofed? Am I really ready for the next couple of years? And again, I could I could say that that battle cry is the battle cry I still pursue to this day for, for businesses and executives. One of my favorite quotes of yours, talking about this fully digital era, it's not heaven, it's not hell, it's more like purgatory. 
I, I love that. I mean, I love the way you write, but unpack that for the audience. I mean, because that is, that's taking this massive lane that you say is never ending and continues to evolve. And you've compressed it in a couple of sentences. When I am asked to speak, the expectation is he's going to come in here and tell us all of these things that we will fundamentally be incapable of doing. <laughs> like we just can't switch our legacy systems. We can't switch our people. We can't switch our mindset. And I believe that whenever a new technology is in, in, invented or brought forward, now is a great moment in time to have this conversation. Think about the metaverse and what Mark Zuckerberg and Med and Facebook are going through, right? It's this idea that if you think about it, you go like, oh, like I'm too old for this, or this is ridiculous. I'd never do this. It's like, that's hell. You can't see where the world may or may not go. Heaven is me saying the metaverse is the future, Tony. Like, forget everything you know. This podcast should be in the metaverse. Everything's the metaverse and virtual worlds. You'd be like, oh, okay. Like, you're... purgatory is when you're in this moment where we don't really know. Is this going to be a fad? Is this going to really be the real thing? Is it going to be foundational? If you can acknowledge where you are, you may have a better perspective that isn't Pollyannic. Uh, this is the future and it's all going to be great. And trust me, trust me, trust me. But you're also not going to be, I'm too old for this. This isn't for me. This sounds ridiculous. Because you and I can go through the litany of technological innovations and laugh, right? Somebody said, Bill Gates, there's going to be a computer on every desk. You were around at that point and you thought, why? And then somebody said, we're going to take those computers that are on your desks at home that you never thought you needed and we're going to make them portable. And you thought, well, that's ridiculous. Why would I need to take a computer somewhere? That's absolutely insane. Okay, well, now we're going to give you a mobile phone. You're going to walk around and talk to people. Like, that's insane. We're going to put email on that phone. You're like, why would I ever need that? You know, you know, we're going to buy things online. I would never put my credit card on the, I mean, I could go through the most foundational changes that we've gone through habitually as a society and consumer behavior. And every single one, we could look years before that and hear, no, no one's ever going to do that. Why would anybody ever surf the internet? Purgatory is actually a good place to be. It's the place where you can say, I don't know which direction I'm going. I don't know if I'm going up or down, but I'm open because I'm trapped here <laughs> to think, to think in a more pragmatic way. So Mitch, I want to talk to you about this entrepreneur that never seems to stop. I mean, magazine publisher, and then I'm producing heavy metal, and then I'm on creating one of the world's leading digital agencies and author and stuff. But you've got a new venture called Thinkers One. Thinkers One is uh, online, thinkersone.com. And it's a place where companies can buy bite-sized and personalized thought leadership from the best thought leaders in the world. So simplistically imagine Cameo meets Masterclass. It's really a place for businesses to buy personalized videos uh, in three ways. One is a personalized greeting. So thank a team member, do something for a client with one of these thought leaders creating a video for them. The second one is you can go live. So imagine your weekly meetings. They're getting boring. People are zooming out, whether it's hybrid, physical or whatever. And now you have a chance to invite somebody to pop in. Again, everything is bite-sized. So 10 to 15 minutes to spend time with your team. So imagine your sales team. You can bring in one of the best sales trainers in the world to just hang out with your team and ask them anything. And the third product is the thinker, which could be a speaker, an author, an academic, a journalist. It doesn't really matter. We have a whole bunch of great people. They predetermine a handful of topics and the company can choose the topic and then they personalize it through a form. The order comes to that thinker. They create the video and send it to you and you can run that in a lunch and learn. You can run that in your event. What we're really doing is democratizing some of these thinkers that typically can only be afforded at things like the big industry event or the big customer summit. We're trying to make them accessible to everyday meetings in a world that I think so desperately needs meetings and engagements and ways in which we come together to be more powerful. 
And it came from, you know, just questions I get. Someone would say to me, hey, you know, I don't need the full keynote. Can you just shoot a quick 10 minutes on control, alt, delete? I never know what to do with that because I, well, I charge the same as a keynote. It's a pain to do all the billing on all that. So we turned it into an e-commerce engine. So making it very easy for that transaction to happen. I'll get asked to speak and then I'll tell them my speaking fee and, you know, not even close budget wise. Well, now I have a way to not say no. And it's more affordable to things like nonprofit groups or smaller businesses. And it's just really a way to honestly make work a better experience and make your engagements and meetings more interesting. I'm really passionate about that space. I think you know that. Like, I really do like going to work. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back. My guest today is Miss Joel, a serial entrepreneur, and his latest venture, Thinkers One. In one of your speaking events recently, post-COVID, you talked about the Great Compression. Yeah, I mentioned that I teased it out earlier, this moment in time we now have everybody connected because of COVID. Right? It's this idea that our youngest of young and our eldest of elders have now the tools to do this. And it's this realization that many businesses had that they need to be in this, what I would call digital first. So the example of a great compression would be just down the street from this office that I'm in now, there's a small grocer that we frequent. We go there all the time. You know, COVID happens shut down. You're not doing anything. At that point, it was really crazy in, in March and April of 2020. Soon after that, well, if you call the store or email them, they'll prepare the order and they'll like open up the door, just a little widget and shove the bag through and you take the bag home in your clean room and wipe everything down. Remember those days? That's what we did. I think they realized really quickly that it's not efficient to do it that way. And so suddenly they had a Shopify site. They built an e-commerce online ordering platform. That's a great example of the great compression. This is a business that you would typically think would never need any form of digital e-commerce, online ordering, online marketing, using Facebook to let people know when they're open, when they're closed, what they're doing. And I think it forced the vast majority of businesses from small to medium to large to really scale. Look, you and I were in the business long enough to know that the bigger retailers, now let's go from the smallest to small to the biggest of biggest. How do they communicate locally? Like they suck. I mean, local advertising was the thing to crack for these massive retailers. Now, during the pandemic, they did it. (laughs) Think about Facebook advertising, right? They had to communicate locally when these stores were open, what services were being offered. And it took, unfortunately, a global pandemic for it to have that forced innovation, which is a huge part to me of this great compression, this forced innovation. My big concern with the great compression when I speak to audiences about it, which is you know one of the big things that I do, is that they don't go backwards, that they don't go, well, when can we go back to ignoring customers the way we used to type of thing? You know, It's like, how do you take these learnings and, and think either one, they're really good engines of marketing, or two, they're really good engines of customer loyalty, or three, the most important one, these might be really great engines of new business. There was a local restaurant that started doing this subscription model. Like every Sunday, they would bring you fresh fish. And so, you know, great idea. It's the pandemic. It's crazy. It's a little bit something different for the weekend. But the chef is kind of a rock star, like Iron Chef type of, you know, personality. I always say that chefs are the new rock stars. You want selfies with all the chefs. You don't want rock stars anymore. And what they did was every Sunday for a little bit of money, you could join them for this virtual meet and greet. You know, talk about a tie into Thinkers One. This is just brilliant. They're essentially built a new business line of online learning. I mean, that's really what it was. This is a small little restaurant with 50 seats that usually would wait six months to get a reservation. But to be able to have a limited 20, 30, 40 people hopping on Zoom on Sunday, talking about the fish, where it's from, how to prepare it, and then basically like an open Q&A, it was an amazing experience. Now, are they still doing it? 
I don't know, but you just built an online learning channel. And I think that's a huge opportunity for businesses of any size. How do you get organizations, you just say not to go back in time because they did it because they needed to, they had to, but now realizing that what they're doing is creating an experience that differentiates them. I mean, what's your advice for people listening that take advantage of some of the learning through the pandemic? At the time, it was just trying to put band-aids on what we didn't know whatever heal. But there's a lot of good learning that came out. Tony, you nailed it. I mean, you just said what the answer is. The answer for that is to fundamentally understand that by doing this, you've really created something that customers need and want. We had a really weird moment in time. There are many weird moments during the pandemic, but one of the weirder ones was, I don't know if you experienced this, but you'd go on Amazon to buy something and it would say, this is coming in two or three weeks. Remember that moment when there, it was so crazy. So I'm looking for scooters for my kids. Somebody to get them outside. And uh, Amazon's like two to three weeks. I'm like, that's unacceptable. So I start shopping the brand. And I shop the brand to a, a very well-known national brand here in Canada. And suddenly it's curbside pickup. Massive in the States, very minimal here. But the pandemic really lit that on fire. I order them. I can't believe they have them. And it's like, yeah, show up in 20 minutes. I'm in spot one. Person comes out, looks like they're in a hazmat suit with my scooters, right? Puts them in the trunk. I drive home. I'm like, this is a great experience. Now, you know, in the business, this is huge. You've now won a new customer over. You've won me over. And so I do it again a couple weeks later and I call and no one answers. And I call again and no one answers. I'm like, what is going on here? I call a third time. Someone picks up and they're like, you know, what? And I'm like, I'm in spot three. I'm here for my order. Like, oh, we don't do that anymore. Come in. Oh, okay. I park my car. I go in. There's like a lineup. It takes me like 45 minutes. I'm like, this sucks. So what's the learning? The learning is had they actually continued this, it would have been, as you said so brilliantly, the differentiator. Like that's the differentiator. The things that worked so well and that your clients and customers loved are now going to be the differentiator in a world where everybody's trying to go backwards. A similar story would be, I don't know how many people you know currently in their 20s and 30s, this, this new work type of person, first real full-time professional job. And they were being really hesitant on going back to the office three days a week, which is what their employer was, was asking. And I said to them, uh, how could you fight this? If everybody your age is fighting this and you go into the office five days a week, 10 hours a day, you're going to be the vice president in six months. Like you're going to be a hero. Make it the differentiator. That's what's going to make you win. And now because the way the world's going, I don't think it's ever been easier to create those differentiators. So what's next for Mitch Joel? Because I have to believe that the next 15 ideas are already popping around in your brain. I think Thinkers One is really day one. The opportunity to make brilliant minds more and more accessible in a myriad of ways to businesses of all sizes, multiple languages, so many different areas from wellness and diversity and inclusion to the environment to you know topics that would be more opaque to a business but more germane, I think is so big. I also have to admit that I, I love doing what I do. I love either getting on camera or getting up on stage and helping people decode that future. What might it look like? What could it look like? What are the things that are so obvious but we haven't really understood in terms of a business ingredient that could make us different. When you talk about decoding the future, which is really what people pay to have you come talk. I guess my final question is, how do we make it a healthier place? The story I used to say to people back in the early days of the internet is, and again, you remember this time so well, well, the internet, it's just casinos and porn. And I said, 100% is if that's all you're looking for. 
but I can show you a world where I never see that stuff. And it has changed me at a foundational level. It's created relationships with people that I, I never knew possible. I started a podcast to have interesting conversations with people. That's a lie. <laughs> I started a podcast because I would read these books and think, how could I secretly speak to this person for about an hour? That would be cool, wouldn't it? I know what I'll do. I'll make a podcast. I mean, it was, it was a head fake. It's the world's greatest head fake. My podcast is essentially a place where I can spend an hour with really smart people and all they're really doing is teaching me based off of prompts that, of, of what I'm asking them. This is how you do it. You find your spaces. You find your places. The internet allows you to not just consume, but create. Text, images, audio, video, short form, long form, live, pre-recorded, it doesn't matter. And the tools, as you and I know very well because we're recording this on this incredible platform called Riverside that we both use, it's transformational. For next to no money, you can have an idea or a conversation and communicate to the world. That Again, that is ambiguous. It's neither good nor bad. In order to kill the bad, we have to bring the good out more. We have to highlight the good more. I want more people talking about chatter that matters. I want more people talking about six pixels of separation because the more we can amplify the places where we're trying to add value and make people's lives better, the more the other stuff goes into those seedy little alleyways and that we can push it. I don't know. I don't think we'll ever be able to get rid of it, but we can definitely overpower it with, with positivity and great content. Mitch, I always end my podcast with my three takeaways. And the first is you are a Renaissance man. Your ability to be that sponge to soak up so much information, to still have this insatiable appetite and curiosity. Also take the time to give it back to the world, almost like Socrates did as a philosopher. It's not, you're not preaching, but more teaching, I think is amazing. The second one is this concept of go forward, not backwards. And he also used it as don't be flat footed. And it's such an incredible lesson in life for people that listen, change is hitting. It could be headwinds. It could be tailwinds, but it's coming. And the idea is just don't get caught. But the final thing that I never knew about you until today is how much you deeply care about humanity. You've got all the money you need. You've all the fame that you could possibly want. And none of that matters to you. I mean, even this new venture that you're doing, Thinkers One, is just about providing content and creativity and ideas and inspiration in a way that it's not just something that requires a big check, but anybody can have. So from somebody that started off uh, really swiggling their, through their life, you've done one hell of a job. I really appreciate you being on uh, Chatter That Matters. Well, I appreciate it. And I'll leave you with uh, one of my favorite quotes, which I only learned about through one of the greatest thinkers and inspirations to me, Tom Peters. And it was from a General Shinseki, a retired general from the U.S. Army. And he said, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. And I think about that all the time. <laughs> RBC is my sponsor and I've got to know them over the years and I like what they're doing with their digital platforms. I'm a big fan of Discover and Learn. If you haven't been there, I encourage you. There's special interest stories. There's stories about how to make mission critical decisions in your life. This is not about buying credit cards or mortgages. You don't have to be a client of RBC's to access it. It's just they're doing their part to put content that matters out there. I also like what they're doing with universities. Over the last year, if you follow this podcast, you know I've talked about their entrepreneurship course with Western. It's free. Anybody's thinking about being their own boss, it's just this masterclass. McGill, they've got a financial literacy course. And again, you don't have to be a student of these universities. They just used world-class educators to create the content. 
and Guelph. If you're in the agricultural world and you want to learn more about the business of doing business and financial literacy as it comes to your farms, it's out there. It's not about credit cards, it's not about banking, it's not about why our customers are preferred over others. It's just about helping Canadians get to where they want to go. I titled this episode, Say It Is So, Joel, because Mitch Joel has been at the forefront of the digital transformation since it began, and he's still leading the way. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.